Welcome to Unconventionally Speaking, the PSA podcast where we go behind the scenes to learn about the triumphs and tribulations that help shape the careers of our Unconvention 2022 learning gurus and experienced masters. Not only will you get a sneak peek into their session, you'll also gain valuable insight into the speaking business and tips on how to navigate the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Kim Sealing Smith, CSP, and I'm here today with John Yo, who is not only our national president, you would know John from his president updates every month or so, and possibly seeing him around PSA, but he is also the licensee and curator of TEDx Melbourne. And we're going to be talking about his background, his journey through the speaking industry, and giving us a sneak peek as to how he was able to take the NPS score for TEDx Melbourne from a very respectable 55 to 95 within a couple of months. So I know that this session is going to be filled with really practical tips that we can apply to our own speaking businesses. So welcome, John. Hi, thanks for the invitation. So excited to have you here. So the first question that I have, and I'm interested in learning about this myself, because even though you and I know each other, we've seen each other around PSA for years, and we've been working together as president and convener of the convention, I don't really know a lot about your speaking journey and what you actually speak on. So let's start off by giving us your first, you know, two-minute verbal show reel. Sure. So I began as a hypersensitive cultural Asian introvert. And I mentioned these three things because the one thing that you do not do as an Asian, especially junior and young, is speak up or against any leader or adult or senior person. So that I'm also an introvert, not only an introvert in the classical measurement style that you do from any of those psychometric testings, but I'm off the scale introvert. So I don't even <laughs> like speaking to myself half the time, much less to other people. And I had a challenge way back in the 90s. I was, and it's very similar to uh, to Warwick Merry, who you just interviewed. We did Y2K projects, and I was trying to convince a CEO in the early 90s that the Y2K, the Millennium Bug, was actually a thing. And there's no way a lowly engineer just out of university could convince a CEO of a major organization, and this is a multinational, that he needed to treat this seriously. But I did have one opportunity, and as I had 30 seconds every time he walked past my office on the way to his office in the morning. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And so I got really good at these micro sound bites. Micro presentations. You know, how do I say something relevant at a level I could understand in short periods of time? Right that gets his attention. And that became the impetus for a lot of the work I did with Ted because their talks are 18 minutes or less. How do you consolidate decades worth of research in short periods of time to broad knowledge levels and experience levels and still be compelling? And being an analyst, techie guy, one of the beauties of uh, knowing the TEDx and TED communities, I actually got access to the analytics. And back then you could tell on YouTube when someone would pause, rewind, or abandon a video and return. And so I use statistically significant data to determine what causes someone to pay attention or someone to lose someone's attention, and then what you need to do to make sure that you maintain that engagement. And that became the basis of my work. And I started sharing it mostly among friends because as a 
tech geek and the introvert. It wasn't something I was really sharing with anyone. And then Michael McQueen, I think it was, found out about it and said, can you speak about this to our CSPs? And I didn't know. I was not in the speaking industry back then. I didn't even know what a CSP was. Uh-huh, yeah. What year was this? I turned up and then found out that people had flown in from all over the world. And it was rather, rather <laughs> harrowing. So that was your first presentation to PSA? Because he was talking about had Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I wasn't a speaker and I wasn't really looking to speak, but that became the basis of my work and my speaking. And I work with a lot of senior leadership, C-suites of multinationals now, helping them understand how to do that soundbite. Right, right. So you really live in the arena of soundbites. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And then how do you stack them together right. to make longer, more compelling messages? Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. So little containers, sort of like data packets. Yeah. <laughs> so once yeah. a geek, always yeah. a geek, right? Yeah. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> so if you don't know what a data packet is, I'm also kind of a recovering geek. I was a double major in university accounting and computer science and now do neither one. But that's how data is transmitted over wires and wirelessly is through packets. And putting those together, you get messages. So now you're doing the same thing in the speaking world. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. So do you do a lot of speaking necessarily or more coaching and consulting now? So I would say it's 50% coaching, about, I'm going to say 30 to 40% consulting, and then the other 10% is probably speaking keynote. Okay. And when did you take over TEDx Melbourne? When did you become the licensed? 2009. Right. Okay. So it's been a while. Yeah. So it was Australia's first TEDx. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, yeah, well, rather humble beginnings back then. And was this before or after Michael McQueen had you speak to PSA? That would have been very slightly before. Right. Okay. All right. So you had just taken on TEDx and then Michael asked you to speak to PSA. And so was that the turning point? Was that the bug? What were you doing professionally at the time? Were you still in the corporate world or had you become a corporate escape? No, I was doing small business coaching at the time. Right. Okay. Yeah, so sort of relate. Similar spaces, not really directly intersecting. Okay, all right. And so was that the turning point then to really double down and focus on the speaking industry in the various ways that you focus on the speaking industry? Interestingly, no. And the... Okay, tell me more. So I had lots of CSPs telling me I should share it, but I said to them I had a data point of one and a community of one, my own. <laughs> So I spent the next three years applying it to different industries, sectors and market segments and and organizational sizes to see if the data still was valid across the different business types. And after three years, I felt I had enough data to go, I could take this anywhere. Right. So, and I did it somewhat reluctantly, even initially. People telling me you should do what you should do. And I just went, I didn't feel I was the person to do it, but the demand And the number of requests got ridiculous. Right, right. So it was just really you were pulled into the industry because the industry was demanding what you had to offer. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. That says a lot about message and timing, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. Uh, No question about it. Timing is incredibly important. And this is why even when you're speaking, the ability to say the right thing at the right time to the right person in the right way then becomes the real challenge and skill set 
of a great communicator right. on stage or otherwise. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. So then, then you started really doubled down. The demand was pulling you into more consulting, coaching, little bit of speaking, really bringing your speaking packets, your sound bites to the world, as well as the data analytics, because everything that you do, and I know that that's one of the things that you've really done for PSA is gotten the organization to look at the data, to make decisions based on what the data is actually telling us rather than what we think that we know through gut feel. So every speak, and, and I want to get, I'm going to put a pin in that conversation because I want to come back to that. But before I do come back to that, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about, you know, it's been a tough journey over the last two years, and the speaking industry is a tough journey. I think Warwick Mary says it's a hard way to make easy money, and I just love that because it's so descriptive. It's so applicable, and the people listening to this podcast are on a continuum between those just starting out, those that have started, had a, maybe even had a thriving business, and, and who really have suffered some setbacks over the last two years. And those who have really bounded through the last two years and everything in between. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about those pivot points, those times when, you know, you as a speaker and coach, have you ever had a time where you thought, you know what, this isn't working, I'm going to throw it all in. And if so, what made you keep going? What was the thing that sprung you back from that? Yeah. I think almost everyone who takes their own solo journey kind of hits that threshold of going, actually, what am I doing this for? Yeah. The thing that drives me is partly my own personal motivation. I have a personal motivation to empower people to reach their full potential and encourage them to do the same for others. Love that. And I think that sort of creates its own amplifying effect. I wanted to be a teacher as a kid when I was growing up. And my dad, who was a teacher, said, that's not a very good idea. <laughs> and he steered me quite clearly away from it. But it, I ended up coming back. <laughs> in some sort of teaching, communicating role anyway. Sure. So I think it was partly my own motivations. It's partly because I have this very social justice bent too. And so empowering people, empowering voices, empowering ideas, helping people have clarity and conviction about what they do, what they believe, what they stand for, where they're going, is also another personal motivator. And speaking is kind of the era I feel I can add the most value. I do a lot of stuff with diversity and inclusion. So it's a great passion of mine. And I'm very fortunate to be able to convert a passion to a profession. A lot of people say don't do that, but I've been able to do that for the last 14, 15 years and consider my life blessed in that regard. Yeah. So I think they're the two major ones. Yeah. And then I'm also, and this related to Ted, is I have this curiosity, this desire to learn, and also okay to be challenged, even whether it's data-driven or, you know, personality or opinion-driven. I like to play that balance because it helps me self-validate my own theories. Am I doing the right thing? Am I achieving the goals I want to do? Am I making the progress I need to make? Yeah. And so the analytics then sort of then becomes a good way to objectively determine whether I'm making the right decisions or not. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is, is that what keeps you going during those times of setbacks is a combination of your personal motivation, plus using yourself almost as a test case and being curious about what's working and what's not working and what you can tweak. Yes. Oh, I think that's fascinating. All right. Excellent. So... 
Do you use that same methodology, if you will, to level up, to take whatever you're doing to the next level? Um, or do you use something else? Tell us about, and I want to talk specifically here in a moment, this is a great lead-in to have you tell us the story of how you've taken the NPS score of TEDx295. How do you level up? If you're at a specific level, how do you level up? What do you do internally? What do you do externally? And then if you can tie that to what you've done with TEDx Melbourne, that would be fantastic. Yeah. And again, it just reminds me of, it's very similar to Warwick again, his three A's, which is, you know, the first one is the awareness, you know, what is your baseline? Where are you at? And then from there, where do you want to be? And then I'm really good at where I want to be and then counting back. But if you ask me to go sit here and create something out of the blue, I'm not that, that's not my, it's not how my brain works. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I need to go, okay, well, what does that look like in the future? How would I quantify that? What would be the core components? I'm a big fan of first principles. All the models that I use are based on first principles, biological systems, or laws of physics. Tell us what first principles are. So first principles is the understanding of what absolute minimum criteria is required to move something forward. Oh, right. So, for instance, the ability to fly has been around since life on this planet was a little single-celled amoeba. But the ability to understand how to fly required the understanding of core principles, mm -hmm. thrust, drag, lift, and a couple more that I've now forgotten off the top of my head. <laughs> sure, yep. But once we had mastery of those core elements, then we knew how to build a vehicle that could get us into the air. Right. And it's about understanding, well, what are the core components, the absolute minimum things you'd need to do to maximize your leverage? Interesting. Okay. All right. So tell us how that relates to then leveling up. So what do you do to level up? So start with baseline, work out where we want to go, and then work out what's really missing. So right, gotcha. when it comes to events and experience design, this is not what I'm going to say. It's how are we going to change the way people think and feel about the world we live in? Oh, I love that. Say that again. That bears repeating. How do you change the way people think and feel about the world they live in? Right. Right. And that's the goal for TEDx Mill. We're not an events company. Right. We're an experience designer. Right. And I think when we're coming to speaking, it's exactly the same. We're not there to inform people. If you want to inform people, put it in an email, put it on a website. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? We have lots of people that are really good at informing. They're called teachers and lecturers. Uh -huh. We remember almost nothing they say. Yes. So it's not because we have a lack of knowledge. It's because we have a lack of traction, connection, or engagement. Yes. And so when we're combining knowledge with engagement, then you've got a point of leverage. Right, right. Yes. Okay. All right. So tell us about the TEDx Melbourne story. Yeah. So TEDx Melbourne, when it came to events, we were a little bit lucky in that we were already planning virtual events before the pandemic even happened. It definitely accelerated it. But we also knew that there were certain things we didn't know that we could suddenly do digitally. So, for instance, we knew basic marketing things like open rate, click through, mm -hmm. but we didn't know to what degree were people remembering the notes that were in there, like who the speakers are, what they were going to talk about. And when we arrived, when we realized that, okay, they were opening the email, they're accepting, 
But because they love our community, they didn't know what we were talking about. They didn't know what the event or experience was like. They were signing up because they loved TED, not because they necessarily knew what the ideas were, which is great. Right. It meant our brand was strong, mm-hmm. but it also meant that our content delivery was not clear. Ah. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing we noticed when people turned up was they didn't, weren't quite sure what they were, they were turning up for. So then we went back and we literally would change one line in an email test. We'd split test, test. Multivariate testing, which a lot of marketers understand, test. Until we got to the point where everyone, when they first turned up, knew what they were signing up for. And how did that affect the ticket sales? Did it increase? Did it decrease because people weren't interested in the topic? That's interesting. So what it did was the people who really wanted to be there were clear about what they wanted to be. The people who didn't want to be there didn't turn up. And the main advantage for that was that the quality of experience of the people who were there was higher, more engaged, and more passionate. Got it. Got it. It created its own self-fulfilling prophecy of, wow, these are my people. This is my tribe. Yes, yes. And when you think about any great you know, brand at the moment, they're excellent at building tribes. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, Facebook, Nike, Apple, Tesla, they're tribe-building communities. Right. So I know that when COVID first hit in 2020, you were on the road to already translating your experience to a virtual experience. Tell us about how very quickly you ended up doing that and what your NPS was before that and after that. Sure. So NPS was between 45 and 55. So let's say an average of 50. And give us an example. Is that good? Is that okay? So just, I might go back half a step and explain what NPS is for people who don't know. Great. It's a score between minus 100 and positive 100. Mm -hmm. Most companies are extremely happy when they get zero. A good score is 20. And we already had an NPS of 50. Now, the 50 was considered really, really good because 70 is international best practice. Mm-hmm. So we were closer to international best practice than we were to average or above average, sorry. Mm-hmm. What we realized at that point was, okay, we've got what we've got, what will we need to do to change the way people think and feel about the world they live in? And then how do we get them to deeply engage and get inspired by what we do, what we're about, what we stand for, and where we're going? And this is the community. I'm just going to stop you right here and advise our listeners to really take that in because this is directly translatable to what we do as speakers, to think about how we want to change their experience, how we want to impact them to change the world around them, how we want to structure that experience. That's directly, directly relevant. Thank you for that. Go on, John. Absolutely. Well, it's funny you mention that because I break up my actual talks into 30-second to five-minute segments, and I do exactly the same thing. So, well, a lot of people in the speaking world understand what a vignette is. You know, that small packet, again, of content. Yes. How do you make that story or element as compelling as possible? And how do you stack them a little bit like Lego yeah. to create different shapes and different sizes and different directions of model to create a bigger picture? Great analogy. So I do that with my speaking, and then I also do that with the event. Mm-hmm. And so what I've given to you at the moment is what happens pre-event up until the before they even walk in the door. Yes. And then we broke that down. Then we said, when we got that, realized, we were, okay, now that they're in the door, what do we need to do next? Yes. And so 
what we did over time is we didn't come up with all these metrics and ideas from day one. It was kind of like, okay, what do we need to do to get into the first point? And then what do we know from that point? And then build to the next point. And then we added more data and more analytics on top of that. And so that's kind of how that happened. And when it comes to speaking, you can do exactly the same thing. You can work out whether they're leaning in, whether their eyebrows raise, whether they are still and they suddenly move. Are they stationary and they suddenly move or are they jittery and they're suddenly still? You know, what's their eyes doing? What's their face doing? Our face has 1,500 microfacial movements that when combined, we call it emotion. We can't see that from the stage, but we can see everything in a screen because everyone is literally one meter away from their ah, camera. Right. Okay. So I can actually see your lens flares, sorry, your nose flares when your nose breathes. <laughs> I can see your eyebrows tweak. I can see the corners of your mouth slightly shift. Mm -hmm. I can see the angle of your head slightly change. I can see the lighting shifts in the background and lets me know whether you're moving backwards and forwards. You cannot do that from stage on mass, mm. but you can do it on a screen. And so it's all these small elements that give us additional data to understand to what degree is someone paying attention. Right. And therefore, we can work out on average if 30% of the screen suddenly did something, we did or said something that was interesting, engaging or disengaging. Right. Yes. And so I had people who were watching because we had screens of 50 at a time. Uh -huh. We had people watching each screen of 50 give me real-time data of what's happening for every individual in their screen of 50. And then... I could then work out, is it engaging or is it not engaging? Right. And then from there, in real time, I would shift my format, my content, my style, my speed, my pacing, all while it's happening in real time, and therefore maintain that high engagement literally every moment to moment. And speakers do this anyway from the stage, but we're able to get much more granular data and much more particular data. And that's an argument. I have to say that's an argument for something that I think every speaker struggles with, or I shouldn't say struggles with, but is challenged by. I know I certainly was. When I first started speaking, it was all about remembering what I was going to say, remembering my stagecraft, you know, and as I became a better speaker, implementing more stagecraft, more tonality. But then there comes a time where you have to know that so well and just be with the audience so that you go into unconscious competence around your craft so that you can really concentrate on the audience and serve them. And that I think that that's a real pivot point for a lot of speakers. What I'm hearing you say, John, is that that's actually easier in an online environment. It is, absolutely. Fascinating. So, and this kind of goes... So I actually want to kind of wrap that up because I've got other questions for you. Sure. So you looking at this real-time data and changing, pivoting, dare I say, pivoting what you're doing in the moment, increasing engagement, that obviously led to that 95% engagement rate. Is that the highest NPS score that TEDx has? I would say it's up there. I'm not sure. I don't have, there's four and a half thousand TEDx organizers across the planet. 
and I don't get insight into every single one of them, but I would say it's up there. Well, it would have to be. It would have to be, wouldn't it? Okay. All right. So this really kind of begs the question then, what is the future of speaking? You know, there's a debate within our community. Are we going back to live? How quickly can we go back to live? Some speakers have sat the last two years out because they just don't want to play in a virtual environment. And I get that because it's, a you know, we have to become our own AV techs. It's an entirely new world. Yeah, it's hard work. So I get that. Where do you see the speaking industry going when it comes to virtual versus live? I think it's a little bit industry specific. I work with a lot of technology companies. They were 20% virtual before COVID even happened. They were 50% while COVID was happening. And I reckon they'll stay there. Mm -hmm. There are hospitality industries who want to go straight back to live. And that, you know, I can see that happening as well, equally likely happening. So I think it depends really on which industry or sector you're in. Mm -hmm. But I think the one thing that everyone can be very clear on is that virtual is here to stay. To what degree you'll be doing virtual as a ratio to live, actually, I think you get to choose. I think we have more choices now around that than we ever had. I have international clients who found my Calendly link and got spread around. And vast majority of my business last year was international. Right, right. And that was completely by accident. Yeah. So, you know, it's open doors for me that I just didn't have before. And so how has that been your journey through COVID then? It sounds like your business has really thrived through COVID. Yeah. So I would say Zoom in particular saved my business. Wow. That's a pretty big statement. Yeah. It was that significant. The vast majority of my work last year was doing Zoom sessions to multinational corporations and at much larger scales than they would have done in the past. You know, I used to do Asia Pac stuff. They used to fly me into somewhere in Southeast Asia and I might do you know, hundreds of people there. But now I'm doing like thousands of people <laughs> because they go, well, if we're going to do it for that group, might as well do it for everyone. Exactly. Yes. So it's worked really well. Thrive, that's an interesting word. Busy to the point where I almost fall over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not necessarily calling that thrive, but... Agreed. <laughs> especially when you're having to get up at two in the morning and go till, you know, seven in the morning and then stop for a couple of hours and then pick up your 10 till threes. And then, so I don't know if I want to choose to continue that. Yes. But it definitely gave me more choices. Yes. And choices are always a good thing. Choices are always a good thing. And I think you're right. I think that that's what the last two years have given us. A lot of people in our community are saying, we done with the travel or I will only travel if it's to an interesting place or it's to a client that I've worked with before or, you know, we all have our own criteria. But I, like you, have picked up more interesting, sorry, all of my clients are interesting, more international clients. And although I'm enjoying, which I never thought that I would say this, you asked me two years ago, if the next two years included almost no travel, how happy would you be? I would have said not happy at all because I thought that I loved the travel until I stopped the travel. And now I realize that I love being at home. I love walking around Mossman Bay and, and Cremorne Point every day. I love coming into my office slash studio and, and having there be a certain cadence and a certain regularity in my life. But it is challenging when you work with international audiences because you do midnight sessions, 2 a.m. sessions. And so I think all of us or a lot of us are, are really weighing that up in terms of how we structure our lifestyle and our businesses. So what do you think will be 
your reality going forward then? How do you see 2022 shaping up for John Yo? I'm really looking forward to it because I actually do enjoy the travel part. I don't enjoy customs and I don't enjoy plain food, but everything else is awesome. And so I think I will still continue to choose to travel, maybe to not as much or not or, you know, not, not as often. But certainly for me, I'm looking forward to the real life events. The human side of connection and what we do as speakers, as event organizers, I still think in person still is very, very strong. And I want to continue to be involved in that. Yeah, excellent. Last question before our rapid fire. Give us a 30-second sneak peek into your unconvention session. Oh, I think the questions, it's going to be highly interactive. I'm going to get people to think about what happens before people even engage with you. How do you want them to think and experience? Great. What happens when they get there? How would you know when you're engaging? How do you continue the conversation? How do you segment and market specifically to different subgroups and demographics? How do you understand intimately what individuals need? These are all the things that you can actually gather quite easily Fabulous. through what we do. We just need to know what to look and how to combine certain data sets to get the deeper insights. Oh, fascinating. I am definitely going to host your session because I want to be in your session. <laughs> okay, we're going to end up with a rapid fire. Are you ready? Yes. Favorite online platform? Zoom at the moment, but it's always changing. Oh, fantastic. Favorite tech hack? Uh, started playing with a stream deck. That's kind of fun, but that's the geeky analytic part of me. I love the stream deck. Love yeah. the good stream deck. Absolutely, I'm with you. Favorite productivity hack? Productivity hack. I think for me, going back to basics, focusing what you love and what drives you, and then continuing to prioritize that as part of what you do. So it's Ooh. the thinking rather than a tool or a or any sort of process. I have chills on that one. Favorite meal? Uh, can't go past Malaysian food, but that's my background. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Favorite holiday spot? Oh, that one's not fair. Uh, <laughs> Thailand's always, well, you know, wonderful, great food, great quality of life, wonderful, hospitable people. Is that the right word? Yes, it is. Yes. Wonderful hospitality, hospitable yes. people. Yep. Wine, beer, gin, vodka, or tequila? Oh, so I'm going to be almost like the others. I don't drink much either. I like to have my friends. My goodness, we've had a lot of teetotalers on this podcast. Yeah. Yes. That's <laughs> all good. Healthy lifestyle. If you could have dinner with any three people in the world, who would they be? Oh, wow. Wow. Alive or dead? <laughs> uh, either. You choose. You choose. My goodness. I mean, uh, Richard Branson as an alive person, mm -hmm. um, I think would be the one I'd really, just the way he thinks, the way he creates, the way he has sort of this chutzpah and drive underneath him, but also this great social value that's important to him. I think he's quite remarkable from that point of view. Yeah. And two others? Uh, 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 Dalai Lama? Yep. I think just even sitting in the presence of that guy is amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen him. Just being in his space is amazing. Yeah. And I would say uh, someone young, someone like a like a, a, a Greta Thunberg, someone who's kind of like got a verve for life and just to understand what the potential for the future could be. Fantastic. And last question, favorite book or podcast for professional inspiration? Professional. I'm a big fan of how I work, Amantha Imba. Oh, yeah. I listen to that one quite often. I think that would be the one I would pick. Yeah, fantastic. John Yo, it has been a 
supreme pleasure getting to know you better and bringing you to our podcast listeners. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unconventionally Speaking. We have over 30 unspeakers of this caliber at Unconvention on the 25th and 26th of March. So grab your seat today. Just click the link included in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone that you know who would also get value from this conversation. And follow or subscribe to the show to ensure that you never miss an episode. See you all at PSA Unconvention 2022. This episode is sponsored by your podcast concierge, podcast production for speakers who want to increase their authority and generate leads from their show. You press record and let them do the rest. And to this, I can personally attest. Thank you.